a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're talking about cesareans. We are taking a deep dive into all things cesareans. I think it's an important topic to discuss because a third of our country currently gives birth by cesarean. So we want people to be prepared to understand what it is, to understand the risks versus the benefits, really learn about cesareans. So to have this conversation, I have Dr. Marta Perez. She is a board certified OBGYN and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Wash U School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. She's passionate about reproductive health and access and patient-centered care and provider-patient community communication. And this has led her to develop a public educational Instagram account where all people can find real evidence-based information about reproductive health, uh, especially contraception, menstruation, pregnancy, and postpartum. And it's actually my second conversation I had with Dr. Perez. She's pretty amazing. So I think you're going to enjoy that. She's got a lot of great insight. Before I get to that, I want to share a review that popped up in the Yoga Birth Babies Apple podcast review. I love when they're there. If you leave one, I'm likely going to read it on air. So this one says, great content for birth and postpartum prep. Due in three months and getting loads out of these podcasts, it made me realize I need to prepare as much for the postpartum period for my own needs and recovery instead of just focusing on all things newborn needs. As for the birth itself, makes me feel more prepared and empowered to deal with the inevitable upcoming challenges. Oh, that is so, so wise. Yes, oftentimes we put so much focus on the baby or the birth that we forget your own personal postpartum recovery as well as your own personal journey into parenthood. So thank you for leaving that review. It's not only great that it helps support the podcast. So thank you, but it's really great advice for the whole community. And speaking of the community, we are growing by leaps and bounds. It is so exciting. So I hope you join me online. We have prenatal yoga classes seven days a week, live stream and re-release. We have all our childbirth ed classes online. We've actually bundled them together. So you can do a little bundle, save a little money. We've got the childbirth ed, the caring for a newborn, the breastfeeding, the partner yoga and massage, so much infant safety CPR 
PR. I can go on and on, but I won't. So check all that out. And again, show up for class. And if you show up for class and you heard about it from the podcast, give me a little hello at the beginning of class when we do our check-in. So those that haven't taken our class, we make it really personalized. Every single class, we check in with everyone that's there. We want to know what's going on with them so we can know what to serve them in class. All right. I think that's it. Oh, one last thing. Teacher training. Um, We're almost full for the November, December. So we opened registration for January, February. If you are a birth worker or yoga teacher and you want to know more about prenatal yoga, we got you covered. Check that out on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. Okay. That's enough of me. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, you're going to hear from Dr. Perez about cesareans. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or set to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo Set as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Dr. Perez. I am so excited to speak with you. As we were talking before we started taping, I love to dive into this kind of information and talking about cesareans. This is huge. A lot of people, I think, have misinformation. I think they have fear, and I'm so glad that we'll have a chance to chat. So thank you for your time, Marta. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on with you. Yay. All right. So I've had a chance to really dive into your work and I'm really impressed with the way you put yourself out there as a medical professional to give information to people. But if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your work, and also what sparked you to go public with Instagram and start sharing uh, your knowledge as a medical professional. Yeah. So my name is Marta Perez. I was born and raised in Florida. I kind of always knew I wanted to be a doctor. I don't know particularly when I made that decision, but I definitely, I don't know, ever since I guess I was a kid or young adult. Um, I went to Georgetown in Washington, DC for undergrad, went to Vanderbilt medical school in Nashville. And then I did my, when you're a medical student, you're in four years of medical school, but then you don't, you're not a doctor after you finish medical school, you have to do more years of training in a certain type of medicine. So like a general doctor you go to for primary care is usually either family medicine or internal medicine. Um, for OBGYN, it's four years. I did that at Wash U in St. Louis, um, or Barnes Jewish Hospital, um, for another four years. When I finished, I went into private practice back in my hometown in Florida. Um, but at the time I had kind of taken that job, I started dating my now husband who is still in his training, he's going to be a super subspecialist type of pediatrician. Um, so we were apart for about a year and a half and then it became clear I had to be the one that had to pick up again and move for, um, for his job trajectory, which was totally fine. So I'm back at Wash U school of medicine and, um, getting to be an academic doctor is really great. I both teach medical students, residents, and 
you know, have my own patients myself. Um, I don't currently have an office, so an outpatient practice, but I exclusively work in the hospital as a, what's called like a laborist. So I just, um, manage women in the hospital, um, and their births and perform their births and everything and other complications, et cetera, which is really fun. Um, I, being a doctor is definitely more than a full-time job, but I made my Instagram, which is a part-time hobby. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> it feels like full-time. Um, I made my Instagram because I just realized that so many women were getting bad information online. And some of that bad information is relatively harmless. I joke that the final straw was a patient asked me, even she knew this couldn't be right. She had seen on the internet, she shouldn't take laundry out of the dryer while pregnant. And I made a joke back because her her partner was in the room, who was her husband. I said, yep, nope, no laundry for you. He's got to do it all. But really, I was like, what is this? And I have had patients come with a lot of other bad information, something kind of relatively harmless, though, certainly for us coffee lovers, not harmless, saying women can't have any caffeine in pregnancy. That's not true. You can have 200 milligrams, which is about a cup or two per day if you're paying attention, Um, to some harmful information, you know, that a lot of bad information about doctors and treatments and things like that. And I realized that also as a really busy doctor, sometimes I wasn't getting, I wanted to spend 30 minutes in the room with someone, 45 minutes, an hour talking to them and educating them and giving them all the background, not just my recommendation, but all the background on why this was my recommendation. And you just don't have the time to do that. Um, Our medical world isn't set up for that. And so I wanted a resource that women could go to to find really good information online and to be able to explain this stuff to empower women beyond my exam room, beyond just my patients. So that's kind of why I made it. And it's been a really fun kind of labor of love. I met a lot of, made a lot of relationships. I really um, have enjoyed the community online. So, and getting to opportunities like this to be on your podcast. So Thanks. Yeah. I actually read, this was a few years ago, maybe three years ago. I read a study that said the average doctor's appointment, OBGYN appointment is about six to seven minutes which seems a little crazy, but also pretty factual. I feel I had the unicorn doctor that literally he would cross his arms and lean against the cabinet and be like, so what else do you want to talk about? And he would just give me the time and he knew I was a doula and he'd be like, so what else is going on? And I, that's also why I waited like a good hour for my appointment, but. Exactly right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think one of my most popular posts is like how to find an OBGYN doctor and have a good relationship with them. And you know, I'm, working on starting a website and a blog. I just so busy. I don't get around to like kind of my online life. It's always sort of an afterthought in my day a lot of times, but, um, I was constrained by the character limit. But one of my big things is that like, please don't get upset about the waiting room because as physicians, we really don't have control over that as much as you think. And you might be waiting for someone who doesn't make you feel rushed. Oh yeah. And so, that's it. It's like, that's why I accepted yeah. it because I literally wait. I planned for like an hour, hour and a half and I would take my laptop and I get work done. But I also recognize on the other side is he literally gave me the time to ask anything, whether it was about being pregnant. I had been seeing this doctor since I was 23. So it had been a while and yeah. he would literally just be like, so what's going on at the yoga studio? And he, he also was amazing. He gave me his email. So when I had questions as a doula, I could reach out to him. So I feel like he was the unicorn, but I know a lot of times people don't have that space and yeah. time and the appointments well, as feel a physician, really As a physician too, it's like, we want to spend that time with people. Like I truly do. But for the, whatever the average of seven minutes in the room, I spend 20 doing crap. I don't want to do on a computer. Like mm-hmm. I didn't sign up to be a doctor so that I could be like, 
on the computer all day and the medical records, choosing the billing. It's just the amount of behind the scenes online work. It just like, you have to like do 10 clicks to order your test to look at your urine or that to check those like hormone, that blood test. And then you have to click five more times to like put in the diagnosis to be able to like order the test. And then you have to like, when the test comes back, you have to click you have to look at the result, click the result, click that you saw the result, click to put it in the note, click to like tell your nurse to call the patient. And this is, it's just like, there's so much pressure on all the stuff that's happening outside the room. It takes away from the doctor patient relationship. And I, I don't like that. Like I really struggled with that. And especially when people, you know, you see patients all day and you try to spend a good time with them. And then you have hours at night when like, and a lot of physicians have families and, you know, and so it it can be pretty burdensome. And I think that's what, and a lot, there's a lot of pushback now from the physician community saying, look, we signed up to be, you know, to talk with patients, to be able to be with them and not to be people online. And we don't like this system anymore in the way that it's become. So anyway, that's just I, and I that, agree. My husband's like, a social worker and I see him for each yes. note. It's 20. He counts. He's like, I do 26 clicks just to put my notes in. I'm like, I get it's it. Ridiculous. Well, yeah. I wanted to talk so anyway. about cesareans. So I asked my yes. community and I said, I'm so excited because I love speaking to medical professionals. I, I really want to pick up brains because I have a lot of knowledge, but I haven't gone to all that med school. And I'm going to admit like, I you know I have to stay within my scope. I'm a doula childbirth educator and I have a lot of knowledge, but I don't have, you know, as much as a care provider. So the chance to speak with someone and be like, let's dig into some topics. I asked my community and a lot of them said they want to talk about cesareans. And I said, well, what do you want to know? And so I gathered some questions from them and this is, it's a pretty hot topic. And it's really such a wide range from people that are like, absolutely not to, we'll see, do sure. I'll have an elective. Like it's such a range. So Yes. All right, let's start with some reasons someone may want to be discouraged from a trial of labor and a vaginal birth. And when the one that I've often hear, and actually I just had a student email this to me, she's 34 and a half weeks and the ultrasound said 6.9 pounds or six pounds, nine ounces. And she's like, my doctor already told me, <laughs> these are her words, my vagina and pelvis aren't big enough. He wants to schedule a cesarean because the baby's going to be too big. And I <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's unpack that for a bit. But, and then I've also heard once a cesarean, always a cesarean. So are those valid reasons? What other reasons, what what could reasons be? The two reasons you said are absolutely not. The, I think your baby's too big based on an ultrasound and once a cesarean, always cesarean. Absolutely not. So let's, I'm going to go over first kind of um, we'll talk about the history of cesareans later, but just kind of diving yes, into I'd these two. <laughs> so, um, there is, so not all babies will come out vaginally healthy for mom and healthy for the baby. So in the natural history or in parts of our world that still don't have access to cesarean birth, women and babies both can die of something called obstructed labor. So I think one of the biggest myths I sometimes see out there is that like, all women can have a healthy vaginal birth. And unfortunately that's not true. Now the C-section rate in our country is very high, too high, definitely above the WHO recommendations, but not all women healthily can have vaginal birth. C-sections have truly a role in protecting the health of mothers and babies. Um, however, there's a few reasons. There are definite indications to do a C-section. And then there are a lot of reasons not to do a C-section. So of the definite indications for a C-section, 
are um, what we call fetal malpresentation, um, which is just the fancy word for it. Your baby is not presenting with its head first. So some babies are kind of sideways in the abdomen. That's very uncommon. What's most common is either head down, which is great, or breech, which is butt down or feet down. Um, I have an extensive kind of post on breech. It's kind of beyond the topic of this conversation. There are some doctors who will perform breech vaginal deliveries, but there was a really, really, really big trial in about the mid-80s that looked at centers both in developed and developing countries and basically saw that the outcomes for babies were better if breech babies were delivered via C-section than vaginally. So there's a lot of back and forth. Science is always kind of changing and evolving. We're always questioning the assumptions that or the findings of certain studies, there's, you know, I think that it could be in 10 more years, we do a certain kind of study, we have more information, like these women, it might be safe for them to have a breech vaginal birth, and these women, it's not. But right now, our recommendation is any babies that are breech um, are delivered via C-section. Um, we just other- had a doctor in New York who used to do vaginal breech, and she just stopped maybe a year ago. So yeah. we have no That's one the in this other area. Thing is- in addition to the fetal risk being higher with vaginal breath, you do need provider experience to safely guide you through that complex type of delivery. And for example, because of the recommendation to do C-sections for vaginal breach, I, for example, don't have that expertise. And I would never offer to do something for a patient that I thought put them at increased risk because I didn't have the expertise to do it. Um, so that's kind of another, um, tension there is that some of the providers that will do vaginal breath are going away. That being said, a second twin. So if one twin comes out head first and a second twin is presenting breach, that is something that a lot of, uh, more physicians are comfortable with and, um, don't have worse outcomes. Um, and it's something to talk about with the doctor. So twins are a little different. So, um, your baby not presenting with its head down is one firm indication for a C-section. The really only other firm medical indication for a C-section is a history of a type of surgery on the important muscle part of the uterus. So not just a a regular C-section, but having to have like a large fibroid removed that impacted the bulk of the muscle wall of the uterus, not down low where a C-section is, but up higher, or having a particular type of C-section that we call a classical, where we unfortunately have to access that area of the uterus. And that happens sometimes um, if a baby is very preterm. There isn't room low enough down to make that normal type of C-section incision, which is called a low transverse, and you have to make one higher. And the reason you can't late have a vaginal birth after an advanced surgery on that part of the muscle of the uterus is because laboring has a much higher risk of uterine rupture than after having a regular C-section. But really those and are some of the only absolutely black and white, you have to have a C-section. To touch on something that a follower asked you about, oh, my doctor did an ultrasound, said my pelvis is small and I should have a C-section. That taps into something that should make sense, but doesn't. So there's something called pelvimetry. Women's pelvises have different shapes. Some of them are ideal for childbirth. Some of them are not ideal for childbirth and can make it very hard. Um, there are ways as a doctor, when you're doing a pelvic exam to feel the bones of the pelvis and try to estimate what you think the outlet shape and size is and whether it will be ideal for birth. The problem is We used to think, oh, you know, we can feel the size of the baby and feel the size of the pelvis, and we can make a good guess about whether or not that will work. 
Well, it turns out actually we couldn't do that. Doctors were not good at that when it was studied, you know, and this is not five years ago. This is like 30 years ago. So for decades, ACOG has come out and said, estimating fetal weight and estimating pelvis size is not a reason for a C-section. Um, so I, I have never told a patient every pa- I've never told a patient that her baby's probably too big. She has to have a C-section. There are certain patients there is one side, and ultrasound, just to touch on that, can be wrong 20% either way, which is over Ooh, a pound either way. I thought it was 15. I'm actually excited to hear it's 20 because well, when I told you know, her that, she's like, oh, he sounded so definitive. Like if I was yeah, on this trajectory, no. the baby would be nine pounds. I'm like, and especially as you get further along, it gets more inaccurate. Ooh, 20. I'm excited. Exactly. <laughs> it gets more, well, you know, 15, 20, those are around the same number. I mean, basically the summary of it is you shouldn't ever tell a woman she shouldn't try labor because of the estimated fetal size based on ultrasound um, or estimated size of her pelvis. Now, if someone had like a history of a horrible car accident, shattered their pelvis, has a bunch of hardware. Okay, that's that's different. different. (laughs) Totally different. Um, But we're we're not, ultrasound is not as great at estimating the size of the baby as we think it is. Our feeling the baby, feeling the pelvis is not as great. So we should never tell someone not to labor. Now, have I told someone wow, it looks like your baby's going to be really big. You do have a smaller pelvis. Let's see how this goes. Like I'm, we're going to give you a chance, like give you a chance, but like, I want you to have in the back of your head, like this could be an issue. Sure. But I have had nine and a half, 10 pound babies come out of teeny, teeny, tiny women. On the flip side, I've had, you know, seven pound babies, six pound babies, for some reason, refuse to come down the birth canal and come out. So you just can't guess what's going to happen with labor ahead of time. There's one caveat in which you can offer a C-section. You don't have to enforce it, but you should offer a C-section. If women have diabetes and their baby weighs greater than 4,500 grams on ultrasound, that's big, 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 big. And it's with the diabetes because of the particular way that babies gain weight with diabetes. It's not just their head, which is the biggest part. It can be their shoulders. So, um, but that's still not something that says you have to, the only way to deliver a C-section, it's you offer a C-section for, um, for that. But under that, you shouldn't be, even women with diabetes under 4,500 grams or women without diabetes over 4,500 grams, you shouldn't be telling women they have to have a C-section because that is one of the, and ACOG, like, I'll talk a lot about like our organizations. Our organizations are very much behind. We need to lower the C-section rate. Mm-hmm. So doctors that are encouraging C-sections for these things, they're not really going by what our professional societies are encouraging. Our professional societies are trying to say, we need to get the C-section rate low, low, low. How are we going to do it? Let's put data behind doing it. Let's try to like make sure that we're not doing things like offering primary C-sections um, and encouraging VBAC. So once you've had one C-section, as long as it's the normal type of C-section, which is a low transverse, your doctor will tell you if it's not, um, the scar on the uterus is low transverse, then all women should be offered the opportunity to have a VBAC and have a vaginal birth after cesarean. There's ways to calculate that someone might be a good candidate or a bad candidate, their chances of success. However, all women should be offered the opportunity to have that. I love everything you just said about that, especially, you know, just having the opportunity to labor. Um, the one thing I did talk to my student about, and I've actually been talking to my class about that, is just, she just got deflated, like the idea of, oh, I don't know if my body can do this. And I think when someone places that discouragement in the mind, you know, labor is hard enough. And then you think like, can I do it? Can my body do it? So we're just trying to encourage, you know, people to give it a shot. And also, I'm not sure, my question that you may... Um, 
I don't know how you'll interpret this, but do a lot of care providers think about different birthing positions and laboring positions to help facilitate the baby rotate? Because like on the back, it kind of pushes the sacrum in and turning the legs out and hiking the knees to the armpits. I can take the sit bones closer and actually make the outlet smaller. Is that something that's discussed and and considered in, in medical school or in, in your residency? Or is that just something um, as doulas talk about? Which yeah, be- <laughs> no, I, I think that brings up a great point about, to me, that really brings up a great point about like patient autonomy and what everyone wants is very different for their birth. Um, so I think obviously movement around in early labor is great. Um, changing positions, being on a birth ball, laboring in different positions, all wonderful. Um, but if you have an epidural, your movement is limited. Yes. Now, our nurses, all the nurses I've ever worked with are like so fantastic about um, once women have an epidural, really changing their position a lot, using the peanut, peanut ball. ball. Don't you love that thing? I pelvis. love it. <laughs> love the peanut ball. Love the peanut ball. Moving them around so when they have an epidural. Um, for women who, you know, are trying to, um, they want to feel the pain of labor um, and, feeling pain is, is an important kind of rite of passage for them in their birth process, then they're able to move around. But not all women want that at all. And they don't have to. Even like Um, rotating to your side. Um, because I remember I had an interesting conversation with the doctor that she, and she was an amazing, she is an amazing doctor. I just hadn't worked with her in a while. Um, was saying she was just used to like how she was taught was with somebody on their back. And when we wanted just to go on the side, cause the, the client had an epidural, it was just not something she was familiar with. So yeah. even without an epidural, even with an epidural, there are some options. And I guess my question is, is it something that's still examined and taught to residents, because I've seen care providers be like, as long as I can have some view, and then right. others are like, yes. no, I need you this way. And it's varies per experience, I guess. Yeah. When I'm, te- I've delivered babies in all positions, you know, on lithotomy, on the side, squatting by the side of the bed, one foot on the side of the bed, lots of hands and knees. I would say that's like the second most, um, common or like comfortable, um, mm-hmm. for women besides lithotomy. Um, So I've delivered babies in like every position. And when I'm teaching the residents, what I'm really telling them is the patient, get the patient in the position that's going to, that feels the best for them. So for patients who don't have an epidural and they're experiencing discomfort, usually those patients have a particular thing that they feel like is giving them power to push or is, feels the best to make it through these contractions, whether that's hands and knees or squatting, et cetera, or lithotomy. Some women really like actually lithotomy position. Um, So I really make it about patient whatever patient driven, I say, listen to your body, get in the position, like I'll help get the baby out. If the baby's having trouble coming out, then we'll have to reposition, help Mm -hmm. you reposition and like work together. But as long as, you know, you can choose whatever. So that's really what I teach the residents as far as doing like with women with an epidural, um, you know, it's hard for them to hold themselves up to do positions that are upright, that are upright positions. But as far as lithotomy or on the side, I would say, yeah, we use those I would say that a lot of women really like the lithotomy position and choose it. And when you offer other positions, they tend to be like, I don't want to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> in my experience. But when, uh, when like, you know, it's been about a little bit longer amount of time that they've been pushing and maybe not pushing very effectively in a certain position, we encourage them to try different positions and put them on their side and stuff. So I would say it is provider driven of trying different positions for women who have epidurals, Mm -hmm. um, especially when they're just having trouble kind of coordinating 
for anyone who's ever had dental work, you know how your like mouth just feels yeah. a little uncoordinated. That's kind of when you have an epidural with pushing. Now women definitely get the hang of it. And there is only a slight difference in time during pushing between women who don't have an epidural and women who do. I see that as a major fallacy online that it takes a lot longer to have a baby with an epidural, but we really only see that it takes longer for pushing. The other labor parts don't have a statistically significant difference in studies. And the pushing part, it's not like a long, long, long time longer. It just can be longer. So women women definitely get it. And I don't want to make women think that having an epidural makes them completely ineffective at pushing. It really can just take a little bit longer and a little bit more like coordination of your body versus when you don't have an epidural, sometimes it just kind of like happens. It's kind of like when you feel nauseous and you have to throw up and it's oh, happening. I like vomiting out the, of your vagina. Like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little actually, bit more of that feeling. We and actually, a lot of women, even who have an epidural still have that feeling, mm-hmm. like that pressure and that feeling for pushing really well. And, but a few of them are a little more numb and it just takes a little bit more like, Oh yeah, I got to get like used to used to this a little bit. So if we do a transverse abdominal toning or training exercise in our yoga classes. So if someone does have an epidural, they at least have that relationship with those muscles, especially if they're going to be numb. So you actually touched on something I want to jump into. You talk, we were talking about the U S has a pretty high C-section. I think it was about a third and both world health organization and ACOG are saying, Hey guys, that's a lie for what we think it should be. What factors do you think play into the U S's high C-section rate? Yeah. So there's two big strategies, um, that I, that are focused on to decrease the C-section rate. One is, and I'll touch on each of them. One is decreasing the first cesarean So all first-time moms should be trying to labor except those firm contraindications that we talked about before. Um, And the second is encouraging and making available VBAC. So just to touch on each of those. um, So for the first cesarean, I touched on how we're not good at pelvimetry and guessing the baby size, and we should allow all women the chance to labor except those firm contraindications. Um, And just some historical context. Um, when I emailed you, I emailed you something to put in the show notes and it's a public document by a a few different professional organizations, including ACOG, um, the professional midwife association and the high risk obstetric population. It's called safe prevention of the cesarean birth. And it came out several years ago. Um, but it's really a way to say, basically doctors need more birth providers need more patients. So Taking it back in history, in the 1950s, there was this doctor, his name was Friedman. Oh, yes. And he wanted to study what the labor curve was. So like, how, what is normal for spending time in labor? Like how many centimeters per person? So he studied a bunch of women and he made a little curve about if it's your first baby or if it's like a subsequent baby besides your first, like how long do you spend in each part of labor? And he decided that at four centimeters, your labor should really pick up. And if your labor's not picking up by the time you're at four centimeters, then something's kind of wrong with your labor curve. Um, so that was taught for a long time. The problem is he was wrong. And he was wrong for a few different reasons. I mean, one, you know, we improve as time goes on. Another problem was he only looked at white women. He didn't study any other types of women. That's not reflective of our community and a completely unfair assumption to make about all women. So... In the 19, as the C-section rate was really going up, um, which is multifactorial, um, has to do with a lot of different things like a medical legal climate, the introduction of universal fetal monitoring, but also his labor curve. 
um, in the 1980s and 90s, people were like, our C-section rate is way too high. And we need to question all of the reasons that we're doing a C-section and see how we're going to get this lower. So a lot of really great academic work went into find like re-examining labor curves. And basically they said Friedman was totally wrong and that four centimeters is not active labor. Six centimeters mm-hmm. is active labor. So really there are, if you look at the full document of preventing the first cesarean and the, all the work that's been done since a lot of those studies, it's basically you should not really be doing a C-section for anyone who hasn't reached active labor at six centimeters because their labor is not progressing. Now that's a little bit different for women who are having induction in their uterus or any fetal indications Mm -hmm. like their baby's heart rate is, you know, not tolerating labor. Those things are different, but just for the labor progress, as long as everything else is going well, you shouldn't really say, Oh, she's not progressing if she hasn't hit six centimeters. And there are ways we can help people reach six centimeters. So if you're you know, body isn't progressing, we can add some Pitocin to help, help the uterus contract and help you reach active labor instead of just saying, Oh, no, your body's not doing it on its own time for a C-section. We can say, okay, these are the ways we're going to like augment labor and really help you get there. Um, as far as being in active labor, you know, if you're spending many, 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 many hours at eight centimeters and you're not progressing to nine, then, then there starts to be the clue, like, why isn't the baby coming down through the birth canal? Is there a misfit problem happening there? Um, but really we need a lot more patients and a lot more hours to allow women to progress through the latent labor phase. And so those criteria, I mean, like when I was in training, we had like, we had those criteria like taped to the desk things you like, don't forget, like you're not calling a C-section on someone who hasn't been given truly the adequate time for their body to be in labor. So preventing the first cesarean is a big push and a big effort to have more time and more patients after debunking a lot of what we thought labor looked like Mm -hmm. before. Do you still think, do you think some people are still going by the Friedman curve and like up failure to progress? Like I know we're saying it's, it's now been moved to six, but do you think there is still some people that are not keen to that? Well, yeah. I mean, you just told me that there was someone who said on ultrasound, your baby's big and the pelvis is small. Let's have a C-section. So there's always going to be, true. <laughs> yeah, there's always going to be people, unfortunately, who aren't really keeping up. But I, I do think that as a multidisciplinary field, we've really made that really grown. Yes. That change. Yeah. Yes. That's good. I mean, just seeing um, this switch from four to six in the idea of active labor and it, it wasn't that, how long ago was it that the new active labor shifted to six? It doesn't feel that long ago. It probably wasn't that long ago. It's been ever since I've been a doctor at least. Um, but I think it was probably the early two thousands maybe. Yeah. Um, Cause I started, I've been doing, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm gonna do this Royal. Um, 19 years. And I feel like maybe eight, 10 years ago, I feel like there's been a shift. So I don't know, but I'm glad there is. I'm really glad there is. So good. Um, these are, that's really helpful. So what do you think pregnant people can do to avoid that first cesarean? So we know that trying not, I guess maybe finding a care provider that's keen with like, okay, active labor doesn't start till six centimeters. What other things can pregnant people do to avoid that first cesarean? Um, so, I mean, I would ask your doctor, even in early in prenatal care or something, you know, like, you know, I'm really hoping to have a vaginal birth. Hopefully your doctor is too. Um, what are the indications for a C-section and just like hearing kind of what they are, there are ways to look up C-section rates at hospitals and sometimes per doctor, 
that's different in some places via others. That can be helpful, but a word of caution about that. Um, I actually calculated my own C-section rate and for women who had, who, you know, either came in in labor or had a normal induction of labor just for, because they wanted to, my C-section rate was actually very low, but I have always worked at extremely high risk centers where women are flown in and helicoptered in because they're in labor at 24 weeks where their baby is much less likely to be head down, or they have a severe life-threatening disease that needs delivery right away and we can't wait for labor. Like I've had those, or they have triplets, which are pretty much a contraindication to vaginal birth. We didn't really touch on that. So my C-section rate overall, when you just look at it, is higher because of all those women who are kind of a they don't go to the hospitals nearby them. They have to be flown into my hospital and then I'm ha- I have to be the one to do mm-hmm. a C-section. Um, so there is like a word of, but I'm very, very conservative about doing C-sections on kind of like when we don't have to. So the, the statistics don't always reflect kind of the full picture, but they can be helpful asking a doctor what they think their C-section rate is. Um, there's like, I don't, it's, it's a little bit hard to say just from the outset of picking the doctor, but I do think you can get a feel for the way your doctor is. Like I'm, I'm kind of the type of person, like I, I love yoga. I don't take medicines unnecessarily. I really like to like live a holistic lifestyle and I treat my patients that way too. That being said, everyone has autonomy. So when patients want to choose, you know, choose something that's higher intervention, that's fine. Like for women who choose a primary C-section, I let them know there's higher risk and I'd rather them labor, but it's ultimately their decision. Um, so I think just talking to your doctor at the beginning of prenatal care, like I'm motivated to avoid a C-section. I understand they have to be done for certain reasons, but what are your indications for a C-section or like, do you feel like you make an effort to decrease your C-section rate, et cetera, et cetera. And getting just kind of a feel for the way that doctor communicates about C-sections. That Other than that, telling. yeah, you're absolutely yeah, right. I think, and, um, I think that can be very helpful. Other than that, it's a little bit hard to say like what a woman can do because Mm -hmm. that places a lot of responsibility and then therefore blame and then feelings of failure about if a woman needs a C-section. Because to be completely honest, there's not a lot a woman can do. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you work out during pregnancy, you cannot force your cervix to open in a Mm -hmm. certain way. We can try a lot of things to get your baby to try to flip from breech to head down like an external cephalic version or an ECV um, is a really proven one. A lot of people try some of the spinning baby's moves, which there's not data behind it, but they're not harmful. So I encourage it. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can't physically make that baby change, that's not your fault. Right. Absolutely. And you can run and do yoga and do Pilates and do every pelvic floor exercise. And sometimes labor is just doesn't isn't happening. And that's just biology. And I'm so grateful we have the ability to do C-sections. Um, but I don't want it to, for women to feel like a failure because they didn't do something when they were pregnant that could have led well, to their actually, vaginal birth. That's a you know, hundred percent agree. The last thing I want is for someone to say like, I failed. And I think that happens sometimes. Do you, I guess your clients aren't, it's not a private clientele that you have, but do you ever have someone that comes back and, and after that a C-section be like, I just want to know why? Yes. <laughs> can you, can yeah. you touch on that? Oh my gosh. Yes. So, um, a lot is happening and a lot of things may be happening at once too. I think a really, um, common reason a patient has a C-section can be actually for the way the baby is behaving and tolerating the labor process where the heart rate keeps going to dangerously low levels with contractions. And if you can't 
have contractions and your cervix doesn't open, but you don't want to just have a vaginal birth with a baby that has a severely lack of oxygen. So, but at the same time, usually sometimes it's happening where we're like, oh, we have to stop the contractions to give your baby a chance to recover. Then we can maybe start them again, you know, try to get them to come back again and and see if birth can happen. So the patient is both like, wow, I'm not dilating because I'm not having contractions and they're worried about my baby. So which is the reason I'm having a C-section? It can get a little confusing, but I definitely, it breaks my heart when women say, I don't know why I had a C-section. I try to be very discreet about like, this is the particular reason you need a C-section. It's because your baby's heart rate goes to dangerously low levels with each contraction. Therefore, we can't kind of wait for the next 100 contractions until birth. Now, when the heart rate's going low and you're pushing or you're like nine centimeters, your baby can probably tolerate that for just a little bit. Mm -hmm. But if you're earlier in labor, your baby can't. And I just talked a lot about um, on my Instagram about birth trauma. And I want to just emphasize having a debrief. So right at, during right before a C-section, during a C-section, right after a C-section, even if people are telling you what's going on, this is like one of the most life-changing moments and you're probably tired and you're probably, you don't have your questions yet. You're just like not in, you know, there's a lot going on. So I try to talk to patients about what happens certainly at the time and during and right after, but also maybe the next day on postpartum and also at their follow-up visits. And having particular debrief moments is really important. And asking your doctor, if you feel confused, what really happened? Can we talk about that moment? And when you have questions that first week that you didn't get answered in the hospital because you didn't think of them, writing them down so you remember them um, and remember to talk to your doctor about them. I think that debriefing and discussions are so important for both doctors and patients to really understand what is it that happened? What are these these questions I have, I find it can be, there's a lot of self-blame around certain things that happen in labor. And I find that can be very healing for women to hear this was inevitable. There was nothing that you did that contributed to this at all. Um, even for just kind of a run of the mill C-section, but especially for ones that are complicated or their emergencies or things like that, all that debriefing and talking can be really helpful. I totally agree. I've had students come back and they just feel like they're a failure and you know, they like, I did everything I should. And I try to remind them like, it's not a recipe. Like we, you can put all the right ingredients in and things still may not turn out yeah. how you want. And I think that, and I, I hope that more care providers do this. I don't hear a ton, but I'm glad to hear that you do sit down and do that debrief because it can be traumatic and it can just really be just bolder on their on their backs for years. Um, so I'm really glad you you do that. Now I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the difference between an emergency cesarean and an unplanned cesarean because I hear a lot of students like it's an emergency, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what happened? So <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, and we come back. The difference between emergency cesarean section and unplanned. We'll be right back. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. So is there a difference? <laughs> Yeah. So as with anything, some things are just kind of vernacular. Um, there are words that we use and they kind of mean different things. So definitely a planned C-section would be like my, you know, I had one of those uterine surgeries that I can't have a vaginal birth. It would be unsafe. Um, I can't labor. So, you know, on this date next week, I'm having a C-section or my baby was breached or, I had a regular C-section in the past, but I'm choosing not to labor. So this is my C-section date. So an unplanned C-section would be anything that comes up during labor that causes the C-section. So those reasons are, um, the medical terms is fetal intolerance to labor, which is basically means that the baby is not tolerating the labor process and is showing us concerning signs on fetal heart rate, uh, monitoring, um, arrest of dilation, which we talked about not under six centimeters, over six centimeters. Um, but we've waited and we've waited and we've tried to, you know, change positions, get the cervix dilate, get the baby to come down, but it's not happening or arrest of descent and arrest of descent is you've made it to fully dilated and you've been pushing, but the baby is not coming the rest of the way down the birth canal, um, despite pushing. Um, so those are reasons for unplanned C-sections. We tend to move pretty fast on the labor and delivery floor. So usually once we say we need to have a C-section, it's usually within a half hour that we're getting started. Um, OB doctors and OB nurses are fantastic. They're, the amount of teamwork and ways we handle things moving very fast is great. So I think that some people, us moving fast, may be a little bit more interpreted as an emergency a true emergency C-section is sometimes called a crash C-section or a stat C-section. Um, and that is for something like the baby's heart rate goes so low that if it's not born within 10 minutes, then there's going to be serious neurological outcomes. Um, and that's like, you know, people aren't running, but they're moving extremely fast. Um, other ones, maybe if a woman, we suspect a, a uterine rupture, or a massive placental abruption. Those things I have a lot a of bleeding. I had that put, placental abruption. Yeah. It was it was not fun. It was a little. Yeah. Um, it was actually. I'll just say it was scary. It was a little it was scary. Very scary. Very yeah. scary. Very scary. I've had some very scary ones. Um, so that's truly, you know, an emergency is kind of a little bit of a vague word, and it's up to a little bit of interpretation um, between us, kind of like going quickly, but not crash or stat and feels like an emergency to definitely like the patients and stuff, but to the doctors and nurses, we're going quickly and not wasting time and dawdling and it's not scheduled, but, um, but we have the ability to make sure the epidural is working really great. And so you're awake for everything versus, um, when it's an emergency, we have minutes, not at, you know, hours and usually under 15 minutes or so. So I'd say there's not a hard and fast rule, but if you have, if, if that feels like a question, definitely just ask your doctor, like, was this an emergency or was this, something that we like didn't dawdle on, but it was just unplanned. I guess the reason I asked that is also just thinking ahead that again, it comes back to someone's confidence and like, Oh my God, I had an emergency C-section. What happens if I have another baby? So I guess it comes back to the idea of confidence in one's body about trying it for another child. And yeah. if they feel like, 
my body can't do it. I had to have an emergency C-section, but then a, more of a conversation, like as my midwife called it, baby didn't fit. I didn't have that, but like, that's when I asked her one of the reasons baby doesn't fit. Um, you know, and that could be, that doesn't mean the next baby won't, it could be multiple exactly. reasons. Um, yeah. So, and there's a lot, it's yeah. not even the baby size sometimes too, as, as you probably know, but I feel position. like women don't know. Sometimes your baby just gets in the birth canal in this really weird position where, and we just, and doctors can, and you know, we can try to change your position and stuff. And doctors can actually try to like manually rotate a little bit, but, yeah. but that doesn't always work. And sometimes it just, yeah, it can be for all different oh, yeah. reasons. I didn't, know my, I didn't um, think my son was going to come out vaginally. His head was slightly asynclitic and it took a while yeah, for that yeah. shin to then move to where it should. So the head can effectively push the cervix open. And I've actually seen care providers also literally go in with their hands and rotate an OP baby. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. that can't feel good. No, I would not do that on someone who didn't have an epidural. <laughs> yeah. no, that I'm glad you explained that. So let's talk about, so a couple things. One, if someone is not planning on having a C-section, but we never know how labor is going to unfold. Do you have any tips or advice how to mentally prepare for the possibility yeah. of an unscheduled cesarean and then even communicate with their care provider if it's not an emergency situation? How can it be, and I put in quotes like that idea of a gentle cesarean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this was a great question. I was excited to get to this one. So I think the mentally preparing part has to do a lot with how one manages uncertainty in a lot of different areas of life. So, um, definitely taking the blame out of it, being like having a good, having a good relationship with your um, care provider saying this care provider, I trust to make the decision that's best with, with me and my baby. And that's a back and forth relationship too, where you get your question answered, which in turn, you know, helps you trust that person and you develop a relationship. So that's really helpful. Um, and a lot of people see people in a group and at least getting a few visits with, with each person to be able to have that relationship is great. Um, and then kind of the trust in your own body. I like that you talk about that, but it's also a trust that like, I'm going to be okay. And that my body will not fail no matter what, like whatever the outcome is, like it's not a failure on my part or my body's part. Um, it's, it's a, a journey I'm going on together and I have hopes for what can happen, but I won't beat myself up or, if, if it doesn't go the way that I'd like it to go, um, I'm going to really focus on enjoying the experience as much as I can. Um, and I think that maybe like thinking about what a C-section entails can help women too. like maybe talking to your friend who had a C-section about what it was like, like looking at pictures, um, or asking, I, I really like talking to patients about what a C-section would be like, like, here's how you go in the room. Here's how you're positioned on the bed. The anesthesia pr provider is up right by your bedside, helping you answer any questions. Some women feel nauseous and they vomit and the anesthesia provider is helping you feel better, giving you medicine for that. And like helping keep <laughs> your vomit contained. <laughs> um, your birth partner is able to be in the room with you. This is what the drape will look like. This is how we'll take it down. This is what happen, happens when the babies come out. This is how we'll try to get you to do skin to skin, even in the C-section OR. So kind of walking through it with your doctor, I think gives you a sense of like, oh, that's what it's going to be. This is how long it takes. This is, you know, what I expect to happen. It's very, it's usually only 10 to 15 minutes until the baby is born. But then it takes about 30 minutes to kind of finish everything up and put everything back together. Um, I'm so, so I glad you do that. Talking through it. I'm so talking glad through you it do is that. really yeah. powerful too, just so you kind of know what to expect, even though you'd like to avoid it, um, can help with some of those things. Now this term gentle cesarean, it kind of makes me laugh to be honest, because 
why would I be rough or ungentle with your tissue as a surgeon if I didn't like, why would I be more rough or ungentle with your tissue period ever as a surgeon? Like as a surgeon, I am always trying to respect your tissue and do only what I would need to do. And then with great care, return you to the best possible outcome of decreased pain afterwards, best function afterwards, et cetera. Well, I think it's Um, more about like, sometimes they'll lower the curtain to see the baby come out or they'll do like a gender reveal. They'll say like, do you guys want to be the ones? So I think that's more what what this term is about. Well, what I prefer over gentle cesarean, which makes it sound like- Exactly, exactly. Is patient-centered or family-centered cesarean? I think that is a much better term because it kind of like takes the assumption that like a surgeon would not be gentle with you and and puts the family at the center of the birth experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so patient-centered, family-centered, I like those terms a lot better. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. There are some drapes that are clear, so they'll take down the clear part when the baby's out. Sometimes even if they're not clear, we can kind of drop the drape and hold the baby up so mom can see. I really like to do that. You know, I do delayed cord clamping most of the time, unless there's a really good reason not to. Um, I really encourage skin to skin in the OR. Um, so after the baby has quickly been evaluated by the pediatricians, being able to do skin to skin with mom, if mom is not able to do skin to skin because of, um, you know, very pendulous breasts or maybe feeling sort of nauseated, then maybe a birth partner can do skin to skin in the operating room. And as the surgeon, I'm operating during that time, but I just love how our anesthesia providers are so on board with this. I mean, it's almost more, um, having a family centered cesarean is almost more of a, not, not a, the responsibility is more on the anesthesia provider. Cause they're the one that's up by your head, helping you. They're not sterilely scrubbed in. Um, and I just love working with our anesthesia providers who do such an amazing job with really ha- like having a great, it's all a teamwork, but having our patients like so involved in having a really great cesarean experience. So I I think it's so important, especially if someone was trying to avoid and, you know, not, this is not how they envisioned their birth. And then it turns that direction. It can lessen the trauma and the self-blame if it can still be a really special experience. And just because it's surgical doesn't mean it's not a birth. It doesn't mean it has, you know, so I love your approach that, okay, it's not, the baby's not coming out of your vagina. That's fine. But we can still make it a birth. It can still be about you and your family and your baby. So I'm so glad to hear that you take those steps and that that is becoming more of an accepted thing. Is it something you recommend that patients or students or clients, everyone are referred to, I, I call them students, you call them private patients. Um, they have that conversation ahead of time saying, Hey, we're going to go, you know, we're hoping for a vaginal birth, but if it goes in the cesarean, can we go a little slower? If it's not emergent, can you let us, you know, can you bring the, the drape down? Is that something that should be discussed or is that always the action taken by the care provider? I would say this kind of stuff is universal now, but I'm always a big fan of communication. So I definitely also think it should be brought up. I mean, um, I I can't even think of a birth where I haven't shown the mom, the baby before we even clamp and cut the cord and gotten that moment, um, for her in, in, in a long, in a really long time years, probably. Um, so I, I do think these kind of things are universal. Um, and I do find a lot of times that, you know, when women make birth preference, 
things, they're really relieved to bring it in and find that like, oh yeah, we do delayed cord clamping and yes, we do skin to skin for an hour. And yep, we do the delayed bath and like, oh, all those things I was really looking forward to. Like that's already what we're doing for everyone. Um, but I love communication. So I think bringing it up and, you know, not everyone where I am, we, sometimes you have to like specifically ask for a clear drape, but even I've been at places where the clear drapes aren't available, but we just bring down the drape so that mom can see. So like we work around that, um, and bring it back up so that we maintain the sterile environment and decrease your risk of infection. Yes. So just talking about, (laughs) yeah. Love you seeing your baby. Don't want you to get infected. Um, but so there's like, you can find out what, which details there are of what's um, possible. And I love telling women too, I encourage skin to skin in the OR and can be really wonderful. It really does have to have buy-in from the anesthesia providers, which I said, many who I've worked with are just so wonderful and your partner. Cause it's just a little hard to balance. Yeah. And some women with very large pendulous breasts actually have a little bit of trouble with that just from a balance perspective. But a lot of times then their partner right. can do skin to skin too. So there's like so many options of really making it patient and family centered. Um, and then knowing not that anyone wants to think about this, but knowing the specific reasons that could come up that may get in the way of something like that. Like, why would my baby not be able to be skin to skin? Well, for some women, they may know ahead of time that their baby already has identified prenatally a really important heart problem where Mm -hmm. they're breathing and their circulation is going to have to be supported by pediatricians. Some of those heart problems we don't need immediate intervention. Patients can still do skin to skin and get golden hour, but for other ones, they really, really need like an immediate pediatric, um, attention and intervention, or some babies have a little bit of trouble transitioning. I always tell patients, your baby has never had to breathe on its own before. Mm -hmm. Some babies take a little longer to what we call transition. And that may mean by a little longer, it may mean five to 10 minutes with the pediatricians. And then we're going skin to skin skin to skin. And then we're being able to, um, get the rest of that golden hour. So it's helpful to know too, kind of like, what are the reasons that something may happen? And is this something to really worry about? Or is this something that might be normal? And most women will know about the very, um, the big um, ones like heart conditions. Yes. Many will know that much ahead of time because we can identify so much, um, on ultrasound these days. So I wanted to shift a little bit to some of the risks associated with the cesarean, as well as on the other side, the healing signs. So making sure, um, so some, you know, what are the risks of having one? And then on the other side, their home, what should they be looking out for to make sure that they're healing? Okay. Yeah. So the reason that we like to avoid C-sections and we want everyone to have a vaginal birth is because C-sections do have higher risk than vaginal birth. So we're performing surgery. So C-sections have a higher risk of bleeding. Um, there's a little bit higher blood loss with a C-section than with most vaginal births. Um, they have a little bit of a longer recovery and, um, which is kind of an amorphous term of usually you're just a little bit slower moving for longer or might need to take a little more pain medication. Um, there is a higher risk of infection again, cause we're doing surgery. Um, so there are higher risks for a C-section, which is why we don't just want to do them for everyone. We want to have a real reason that's a firm reason to do them. Um, and then in terms of recovery, it's not unlike vaginal delivery for some of the aspects of recovery, certainly fevers, pain should be getting better. Same with women who have had stitches. I tell women, having some pain and discomfort, whether you've had a C-section, you know, um, uh, stitches after a vaginal tear, 
it should get a little more comfortable each day. Yeah. One day you might do a little too much and it might be worse, but overall you should be getting better. If you suddenly feel like you're going the other direction and you feel like your pain is worsening, that's a reason to reach out to your doctor. Any, any fevers or chills are reason to reach out to your doctor. Increasing in pain associated with a really, um, you know, abnormal and foul smelling vaginal discharge reason to call your doctor. Um, and then just something I tell women all the time, your intuition is right. If something just feels not right, something is just not right. I'd rather you call and we'd be able to look at you because some of the things that are not particularly associated with C-section can happen to anyone postpartum like preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just might feel really, really off and you don't know your own blood pressure sometimes. So we need to take a look at that. Um, so I'd really tell women to trust their intuition about coming back. Um, as far as the C-section incision, having a little bit of fluid coming from um, the incision site is normal. When your body is bringing in all of the tools to create the bridges to heal the tissue, kind of one of the side products, just like we breathe out carbon dioxide, some of the side products is just some serous fluid. So as long as the fluid is like, you know, a little bit of like an amber color, a little bit of a red tint, but overall it's clear, that's fine. But if you're having red bleeding or anything that looks like pus, then that's something we want to see you for and examine that um, to make sure everything looks like it's healing well. Is there anything someone should have prepared either mentally or physically for being home? Like, I guess I had, I've never had a C-section, but I did have hernia surgery and I was shocked. I thought I was pretty strong before and I was shocked how hard it was to lift kind of anything after that. And I remember sneezing for the first time was so scary. I was out and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to split open. So yeah. <laughs> well, I, I tell people too, it's like, I don't, I don't, many, many women will have had this experience before, but not everyone. If you've ever like done a really, 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 really intense core or ab exercise, and then you don't realize how many things you use your core for <laughs> because you're so sore. That's sort of what some of the experience will be like getting out of bed go changing positions from like laying to sitting, those things are using those core muscles. And although your muscles are not the particular, we actually usually in a cesarean are not touching your muscles really at all. Um, we're not cutting them. We're not stitching them. Some people will put some stitches in them. They're the data is out on whether that helps at all, especially because most of our stitches dissolve within a few days. So they're probably they're not trying helpful. To draw the, but, they stitch the rectus back together. There are some doctors that may do that, but I don't think it's effective because our stitches just dissolve. Okay. I think diastasis is a much more functional problem than it is a, like a stitching muscles together problem. But anyways, we don't really, it's not actually the muscles, but it's the abdominal wall, the actual integrity of the abdominal wall, this thick fibrous tissue Mm -hmm. that in the area where your C-section is, that tissue is above that muscle. Um, But that's where a lot of that discomfort comes from. Um, so you kind of realize, oh, that's how much I use my core. A lot of women will find a binder helpful, mm. um, just because it helps support the abdominal wall when you're sneezing, coughing, changing position. Um, so that really helps a lot of women. And then just being able to ask for help. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it might be, I, you know, partner, will you get the baby out of the bassinet for this and hand it to me for this feeding, um, and things like that. So not being afraid to ask for help about things. There's a happy medium of movement to not pushing yourself too hard, but being able to kind of do a little bit more each day. Um, but really your doctor is not, if you don't feel strong enough or stable enough or like comfortable moving enough to 
do basic activities, getting to the bathroom, getting the baby in and out in the hospital, your doctor is going to want to make sure we're getting you to the point with pain control that you're definitely able to do those things. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. So you have so much information. I'm going to just ask you if you can pull one or two out of one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents. Great. Wow. There's really so much. I think one of the biggest things I can see, though, is is to just accept the process and accept things that you can't really control. Mm. Um, all of us are trying to have the healthiest pregnancy, healthiest birth, great health for ourselves and our future children or children that are here. But sometimes things happen that we can't control. And especially for first-time parents, there's a lot that your baby does um, or child does that's out of our control. So starting to be okay with kind of that journey of I'm going to do the best I can, even though I can't control every outcome is really, I think, a way to find peace with some of the things that can be frustrating or unexpected when it comes to like pregnancy, birth, parenting, et cetera. Oh, I love that because as a mother of two, I've tried to have control of my kids and I realize I I don't, I just don't. And when I, when I gave that up, (laughs) it made things a lot easier. I I see that carry into like both, like, I think it it doesn't come up too much in pregnancy, but I do see it really come up with the birth process. Mm -hmm. And then especially with, um, you know, breastfeeding process, sometimes, that is not as easy as we hoped it would be. And then a lot with like sleep training. I see a lot of, well, I did everything X, Y, or Z sleep trainer told me to do. And I, my baby's still not sleeping. It's because we can't always control everything. You can do everything right, set up everything perfectly. But at the end of the day, life isn't predictable or able to be controlled in those ways. So you're so right. When I was doing this, um, I'm sure I've heard the method birthing from within. They talk about it, um, like birth pie, like you can put all the ingredients in, but sometimes the pie doesn't come out how you think, you know, like yeah. there's only so much we can do all the quote unquote right things, but yeah. then certain things just happen. And I, I tell go. people all the time too, like if you had control over your blood pressure, like I tell patients who end up having like a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. If you could control your blood pressure, I absolutely know you would choose for it not to be high, but you can't (laughs) control it. Just happened. Or if you could control, you know, your cervix opening or your baby's, what your baby's heart rate and umbilical cord blood flow is like, I absolutely know you would choose like the thing that was less complicated. So it's definitely not your fault or anything that you did wrong or differently that could have, you know, changed it. And I like that because then it also takes the pressure off of like, I have yeah. to do it perfectly. Oh, that is one of the better ones I've heard in a while. That was really I know. good. And that's why I'm honestly like, I see a lot of um, people and I obviously want to promote healthy habits, but I see a lot of, oh, you know, if you exercise during pregnancy, C-section rates are lower and vaginal delivery rates are higher. But I like, as much as I want to say that, because I want everyone to try to exercise during pregnancy and move their bodies and stuff. I also say, you know, make the disclaimer like, but it doesn't mean it's zero. Mm-hmm. So you can try to do things that kind of increase risk, decrease risk of X, Y, or Z or whatever, but nothing is ever certain. <laughs> so yes, 
you know, yes. I don't want to. And then sometimes that takes as like a shaming approach, like, oh, I had all these things that pers- people told me would help me. And I still ended up with this thing I didn't wanted or didn't want. Sorry. Yeah. And, and I'm like, yeah, well, don't feel shame. Don't feel inadequacy because of that. Some things we can't fully change. Oh, I love that. So. Yes. Oh, yes. That's one of the best ones I've heard in a really long time. All right. So not only are you full of knowledge, but you share that knowledge a lot all over. So where can people find your work? Yes. So people can find me. I started out on Instagram. So I'm at Dr. Marta Perez. That's D-R dot Marta, M-A-R-T-A-P-E-R-E-Z. And then I just launched a YouTube channel that's focused on more birth. So I might um, Instagram, I focus on a lot of different OBGYN things, everything from birth control and breastfeeding and pregnancy and everything. But the YouTube channel specifically is a little bit more about the normal and the complications around birth. So it, they're just short videos, like about five minutes or so every Friday. And that my YouTube channel is also at Dr. Marta Perez. So they can find me there. I'm going to go look at your YouTube channel. Is it just you talking or do you have any births that you show? No, I'm not getting into, there's a lot of complicated patient, um, privacy. I was going to say like, how um, are you? Yeah. <laughs> They're in the middle of pushing. You're like, sign this consent form. Like- yeah. So right now I, I've just gotten started. So I have an intro and then I have like, my first video is what is labor, where I just kind of go over what is actually a labor process, what goes into it. The second one is about breaking your water or rupture of membranes. Um, and so once I, I'm kind of covering some of the basics first and then, but I'm going to get more into things like preeclampsia and like more specific, um, birth positions and stuff like that, but it'll mostly be me. It won't feature patients just because patient privacy is an utmost concern. And I, I try to, yeah. And like some people are totally focused around like showing other people's stories or being like people like, you know, especially birth photographers or have close relationships, but, um, I'm more like taking a more of like a teaching concepts, uh, Oh, view I of can't it too. To so go. when you have a question, you can just get like a short answer from an OBGYN doctor about it. I'm going to look at that. And if so. you ever decide that you want a little yoga on your page, you let me know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Well, it is always, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. <laughs> all right. Be well. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.